0: Dr. Jeffrey Lang is a professor of mathematics at the University of Kansas, and um, he has written two books on Islam in America, uh, Struggling to Surrender, and Even Angels Ask. And he's currently writing a third one, so good luck, inshallah. He embraced Islam in 1982, a year after receiving his PhD from Purdue University. He's married and has three daughters, ages 12, 14, and 15. And that's pretty much all I know about, so. <laughs> <laughs> so. All right, tonight, inshallah, we will be talking about, and those are his words, and he'll do the explaining, inshallah. The exile of American-born Muslims. That's it, all right? Assalamu alaykum. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, the exile of American-born Muslims. <clears throat> What am I going to talk about? Uh, <clears throat> I'll begin with with a question. What is the largest group of Muslims in America? The mar- largest group of Muslims in America? Well, of course, uh, among the Muslims, what's the largest group? Well, let's see. Um, men? No, maybe not. Women? Uh, immigrants? Uh, converts? I don't know. Well, let's uh, just try to. Uh, calculate that, roughly. Uh, they say that in the United States, there's somewhere between, some estimates are as low as four million Muslims, some are as many as eight. Let's take the median, the median between those two, let's take six for our hypothesis here. Let's say there are six million Muslims in America right now. I think that's, it doesn't affect the calculations all that much, but let's say there are six. Estimates are that there's approximately a million of those six Muslims, approximately a million of those are converts, okay? So we'll take the million or so converts and put them on the side temporarily. (laughs) That leaves five million other Muslims, okay? But wait a minute, for a second, let's take those five million and those million and put them back together. Look at that six million Muslim population. Most of those Muslims are family members. They come from Muslim families. The average Muslim family has at least three children. Muslims seem to like to have children, so maybe four or five would be a proper average. But let's say three, just to make it conservative. So that says in a family of five Muslims, we have three that are children, three that are Americans born in this society to Muslim parents. That's 60% of those 6 million Muslims are Americans born from, of Muslim families in America. 60% of 6 million is 3.6 million. Toss back in a million converts, that's 4.6 million. 4.6 million out of 6 million is at least 75%. Somebody tell me where they are. Because I go from mosque to mosque to mosque around this country, to Islamic center, to Islamic center, to Islamic center, speaking to Muslim audiences, and I don't see them. They're unrepresented in almost every audience I see. Oh, you might have one, two, three, four, five showing up at conferences like this, maybe even 10 or 15. But if you go to most Muslim communities about America and you go to their masjids, you go to the community meetings, you go to the community events, they're not there. In Lawrence, Kansas, we said to have somewhere now, the estimates are between 500 and 1,000 American-born Muslims living in that community and the surrounding communities. Do you know how many show up to the Friday prayer weekend, week out, or to community meetings? Two, myself and one other. Where is that 75%, the invisible 75% that we rarely see? Through the past 50 years, there's been a large-scale, steady flow of immigrants to America America from Muslim countries through the past 50 years. There were large-scale immigrations before that. But for the past 50 years, almost half a century, we've had a sustained, continuous influx of Muslims from throughout the world. And although they have created American Muslim institutions like MSA, ICNA, Isna, A.I.N.A. I think A.M.C., various uh, other abbreviations and etc. The religion has not really taken root in this country, even after half a century. Because in order to take root, it has to take root among the indigenous population, among the born population. We've been here half a century. When I entered this religion back in the 1982 and I used to go to the mosque to pray, I would find that the composition of the mosque consisted basically of immigrant Muslims and visiting foreign students, and a handful or two of converts to Islam. In the 1990s, early 1990s, whenever I would go to a mosque anywhere in the country, I would find that the majority of that community would be immigrant Muslims, visiting foreign students, and one or two at most converts in that c- congregation. When I go to the mosque today, the situation is the same. In 50 years, you could, make, you could have at least three generations of Muslims. Where's the second and the third? <clears throat> we want, we're talking about taking the world, taking the message of Islam to the world winning the modern world to Islam, we're not even winning with our own children. So we have to start asking why. Now, we normally hear the usual excuses, the negative image of Islam in America. We could always blame it on the press. But let's face it, I mean, over the last 50 years or so, the press has become a little bit more balanced Oh, you still have some demonization. I guess they talk a lot about the Taliban and the oppression of women there, according to the U- you know American media, the destruction of the Buddhas. But that kind of stuff doesn't really affect the outlook of our children. They could toss that off as prejudice. And they usually do. Osama bin Laden is public enemy number one, according to the US government. The Soviet Union is no longer the, public, the enemy, so Osama Bin Laden will have to substitute. <coughs> but again, one person or the fame or, or disfame of one person is not going to drag our children away from the masjids, not from our communities. We have to really start thinking more seriously about where have all our children gone, as the song used to say back in the 60s, where have all the children gone? <clears throat> well, how can we find out? Well, you could start by asking them. But usually, if we, if we ask our children why they don't seem to have the same commitment to Islam, the same love of Islam, the same commitment to its in, going to its institutions and participation, they're usually not going to elaborate on their reasons. Because they know that if they tell us that we will not like what they hear, I had interviewed young Muslim kids at the University of Kansas and at other universities that have no participation whatsoever in their communities. And they come to me and they tell me all the doubts they have about this religion, all the reasons why they're skeptical about it, all the problems they have with this religion. I said, did you ever talk to your parents about it? Most of them said they always, always have the same story. I asked this question once, my father just belted me. Or I asked this question once, and my parents said, you're not a believer. Or I asked this one question, and they told me, if you keep on thinking like that, you're going to get out of this house. So they learned not to talk about it, just to keep it to themselves. There are some ways to tell, if you actually go out and solicit their response. In the past several years, I've been getting hundreds of emails from American Muslim kids. I really can't answer them all. But I asked them for their reasons or their, whatever problems they might like to communicate to me that they have with this religion. <clears throat> and you'll be quite surprised at the depths of the questions and the problems that they have. One me- another method, aside from soliciting information from them, Another method is just go to the websites and chat rooms that they go to, to the various Islamic websites and the various chat rooms, and see the discussions that take place there, and record that information, and start pouring through it and see what their problems and their issues are. It'll be quite—it's quite revealing. So far, I've collected several hundred pages of data on what our children are and converts also because they're part, they're part of the American Muslim sector of our society, charting what they have to say about our religion and what problems they have and why they're not participating and why they're drifting away from this religion. Because half of the people that email me start from the, begin with this remark, I either think or am no longer, I either think or am, or I either think I am or no longer am a believer. I think I'm becoming an atheist. <clears throat> so where have all these children gone? Well, now, I don't, this is not scientific because I'm soliciting this information. This is not at a, an objective poll. But you could guess what some of the problems are, and they're rather obvious. One of the main problems I, they have is a clash. They see a clash between the culture that they grow up in the surrounding culture, the culture that helps to shape their minds, and the culture, the religious subculture, that they're asked to be a part of. This issue of culture class, of separating culture from religion, of trying to separate essential Islam from interpretations of Islam, culturally-based interpretations of Islam, is a central issue among that 75% of Muslims in America, that invisible 75%. And there are many cultural issues that they bring up. I don't have time to delineate them all, but of course you can imagine what's on the top of their list, the issue of the roles of men and women. No issue looms larger among that silent majority in our community, that invisible majority, than that. And the kids tell me that they have doubts about Islam because they see Islam as subjugating women. I don't want to debate the issue yet. I'm just trying to share with you some information. If you wanted to debate about Islam and women in Islam the other night, that was for the other night. I'm just trying to share some information and outline a very long chapter in my book, in my next book. They say that women are discouraged from attending congregational prayers. Some of them describe the mosque as a men's club, as a young men's Muslim association, the YMMA, one lady wrote. They tell stories of how they were kicked and thrown out of the mosque because they wanted to attend the Friday prayer and not be shunted to some small, dingy, dark room in the back where a couple of other ladies are stranded. But they don't even get to see the speaker. And they have to sit in some closet somewhere listening to the Friday prayer. They tell me these kind of stories. How they fought bravely and maybe with a couple of other sisters and resolutely until they were practically almost bodily thrown out or at least threatened that way. And so they stopped going. And their connection to the community ended right there. I remember when I was back in San Francisco, we had four young lady converts. They all converted around the same time. I have no idea why. It was almost a miracle. Four students, female students, converting to the religion. They almost did it as a team. They needed to sort of support each other, to give each other courage, to give it a shot. They started tending the nightly prayer, the morning and the nightly prayers, because the Fajr prayer is pretty tough to get up to and get to the for. but these students made it because they loved to hear the Qur'an recited. Well, several men in the masjid went berserk. What, ladies in the mosque? One man got so irate that he threatened in front of the entire community with the ladies present that if any more women were to show up in the mosque, he was going to throw them out bodily. The ladies didn't want to be the center of controversy. They stop coming to the mosque. Three of those ladies aren't Muslims today. <clears throat> Women are denied positions of influence in our community, denied positions on boards of directors, denied representation in the community, political representation, social re- representation. We call that disenfranchisement when you're not allowed to let your opinion and voice and perspective be heard. Community decisions, they complain, are made almost entirely by men. The women's voice is not heard, except among their fellow women. But since the major community decisions are made by men, they're excluded from that. That's their complaint. Women converts so far have been a small exception, a slight exception to what I've talked about so far, of that 75% there's a considerable number of lady converts to Islam that participate in their communities against great odds. Or at least that's what they say. That's what they're reporting to me. Against great odds. Because not only do these ladies feel, rightly or wrongly, just trying to help us understand why people are not coming that we would expect to be coming, why the this majority is almost invisible. What they tell me is that they're treated like second-class citizens in the Muslim community. As a matter of fact, they tell me they're treated like third-class citizens in the Muslim community, or fourth-class citizens, because they tell me on the top you have the Muslim men, and then next you have the women from foreign countries, Muslim women from foreign countries. Then on the third tier, you have the immigrant women, Muslims. And then on the fourth tier, you have the American lady convert. Now, whether that is rightly or wrongly perceived, the fact that that perception exists should be a concern to us. What are we doing to communicate that perception? I'll tell you right now, a male convert doesn't feel the same. Especially if he is white, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, Anglo-Saxon, male, he doesn't feel the same. The day I became a convert, it was as if an angel came down from the heavens. There were tears flowing from people's eyes. Brothers were hugging me left and right. People were stopping me in the halls, congratulating me. Some people were kissing my hand. They couldn't get their ha- keep their hands off me. I walked, the day I became, a, I went to a meeting, I must have had my, my pockets were so filled with people's addresses and papers, I looked ridiculous. I looked like the scarecrow in the Wizard of Oz. <clears throat> I remember I was driving home and somebody said to me, oh, brother, if I could only bring you to my country, His country was Kuwait, if I could only bring you to my country and they could see you with your blonde hair and blue eyes and white skin <laughs> and your American accent. I thought, oh my God, I mean, if the prophets and this message didn't work, what, 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 what am I going to achieve? I told them, what is this business, this color, this color obsession? What I, I didn't know at that time. I was new. I learned I quickly caught on later on. But I said, if I was what, a black American, and you drag me in front of that audience, they'd be less impressed? He didn't say anything. I later learned, of course, that was true. <clears throat> but back to the women converts. They claim that they are the subject of derision, they're ignored, they're disrespected, they're marginalized, disenfranchised, ostracized from their own community, that they are not given equal status with other members of the committee, especially men, but even other women. They claim that, oftentimes, they claim that the women, the traditional Muslim women, treat them worse than the traditional Muslim men. Now, I know it seems far-fetched to you, it seems like a fairly open-minded community, <laughs> so much of this probably doesn't apply to you. But I found in my own experience that Muslim men could harbor some, let's say, misogynist views towards women. I remember once a lady and her mom, a student and her mom came to the mosque to learn about this great religion they heard about. They heard a great speech about Islam, and they were so turned on to this idea that they wanted to go to the mosque, mother and daughter, to learn more about it. They arrived at the Islamic Center. The brother opened the door to see two smiling ladies standing in front of them, and he slammed it in their face. And he was quite proud of that. He was bragging about it later. Sometimes these prejudices and attitudes could go rather deep I've experienced it myself when I was in San Francisco. We had an imam of the Islamic center. I'm not gonna mention the time or the place or the era. We had an imam of one of the Islamic centers and he was accused, and it was an accusation, by six ladies, by six ladies who attended his Arabic classes, six lady converts. They accused him of sexual harassment. They accused him of making sexual overtures to him. He was married and had children, by the way. They accused him. I'm not saying the accusations were true or false. The community apparently felt otherwise. He came, they took their complaint to the leaders of the mosque. The leaders of the mosque had a hearing. The women, of course, were not present, but I was. They took a written statement by the women and read it in front of the community members. And then various community members, even the leaders themselves, stood up and began to defend the poor imam. They said, Those ladies are prostitutes. They said, They're nothing but American whores. I heard it with my own ears. They claimed that they were B I T C H E if you know what I mean. I heard one phenomenally demeaning, derogatory statement after the next. Despite all that, and I know you're probably thinking, well, Jeff, you're an American and you're just defending your countrymen. And frankly, I don't like to be put in this position precisely because of that reason. I lose some credibility when I do this. But frankly, my God, brothers and sisters, if I don't do it, nobody else is going to because I don't hear anyone else talking about this. I've been in this community 20 years and I just never hear it spoken no wonder our children feel separated from their community I only brought up one cultural issue there are other cultural issues as well which I don't have time to go into the children also complain and the converts also complain that there is an intellectual divide that they have to face that they cannot seem to relate to the khutbas the speeches the positions the thought the perspectives that come from behind the pulpits of the islamic institutions in america they can't relate to them maybe it's our own fault you know because we've pushed our children We've pushed them to become some of the most educated, some of the brightest, some of the hardest working, some of the most competitive students in America. Our best children are going, our our children are among some of the best students in America. We have them in Harvard and Yale and Stanford and in all the Ivy League schools. In the Big Ten, they're getting degrees in areas of critical research. They're among, they're learning things like, oh, critical methods of historical study, literary criticism, textual criticism, form criticism. They're learning some of the most modern and most revealing historical critical techniques. Some of them are becoming scientists. They're becoming leaders of critical thought and innovative thought in America. That is their mindset. And they've, done, and they've done very well. But when they go to the mosque, they're told one thing. And when they go to their school, and everything they've learned and everything they've become tells them to take another approach. And I'm not saying this is good or bad. I'm just trying to explain the way, the, what they explain to me. Because in their education and in their schooling and now in their minds, they're taught rationalism, cold, objective reasoning. While in a community, the stress is on tradition, following traditional thought. Don't quest, question the tradition. Don't raise difficult or controversial questions. They see a conflict there, a conflict of thought. In, the, in their education and in their society and in their entire life, they're taught individualism. It has its good and bad sides but they're taught individualism. We teach them conformance to community norms. Don't rock the boat. Don't don't make a fitna. Don't create havoc in the community. Don't ask too many questions. One American lady convert back on the West Coast, she converted when she was 53 years old. Her husband had died several years earlier. She discovered this religion by reading the Quran, converted to the religion, and she would be constantly going to the leaders of her community, asking them questions, especially about the role of men and women in Islam, badgering them again and again because she didn't find the answers were satisfactory. And she was attacking them on rational grounds. At first, they politely replied, and then they tolerate a little more, and then they started to get a little bit angry with it. And finally, they just told her, just leave us alone. Keep your questions to yourself. You are only a convert. We've been Muslims all our life. You are only a convert. The lady had a reply. She said, so were all the companions of the prophet, peace be upon him. Our community, the American community, teaches our children innovation, adaptation, relativism. Our community stresses the eternal and immutable. Our students are taught critical objective research. We're told we teach them to revere the ancient authorities. There is a, and they see it as a conflict. They see it as two mutually exclusive approaches. That both sides are unwilling to meld, to bring together the two approaches, to seek reconciliation. <clears throat> since our children, since this great 75% of mus, are you guys getting exhausted? I could tie this up in one minute. <clears throat> I thought you'd want. I tell you the truth. I expected you to want to throw me out of here, but. <clears throat> OK, <laughs> since this great 75%, at least, this great 75% of invisible majority is told that our communities are the true practical model of Islam in America. And and since they have these conflicts, intellectual conflicts with that model, they see, They begin to have a difficult time seeing the relevance of Islam in their life. They start to see this as a religion that lacks relevance, perhaps is even irrelevant. And little by little, that 75% drifts farther and farther away from this community. There have been entire Muslim communities in America that have entirely disappeared from the past. A trace of them left. If you take away right now the immigrants and the students from the Muslim population, from the Muslims in America, the masjids and our institutions will be empty. And those masjids and institutions will be converted to some other secular uses. <clears throat> the children mentioned. I call them children, some of them in their twenties, thirties, even forties. Some of them are professors at schools, doctors, lawyers. These second generation Muslims and converts report that they have problems with other issues as well, which I don't have enough time to get into. They They talk about problems with classical Islamic theology. Theology is a theory. Our theories we construct trying to understand the relationship between God and ourselves. Theology is a theoretical enterprise of man. They have disagreements and problems with the classical mythology. The essential classical mythology is the school of Al-Asheri. The other essential school was the Mutazila. They debated it out for the first few centuries. The Al-Asheri's viewpoint finally went out. But our young people really can't make any real find any real relevance in either approach. <clears throat> they even see major conflicts between both approaches and what is stated in the Quran. And part of the problem is is that when it comes to systems of thought, we always have to keep them alive. The answers and the interpretations And the work of scholars in the past must always be reviewed, critically analyzed, updated. We always have to be checking and rechecking the work of the scholar because no scholar has the final word. This is true in physics. It's true in mathematics. It's true in engineering. It is true in the study of history. It is true in social science. It is true everywhere. If we rely on any century's thought, then we inevitably become stagnant intellectually. And we stop reaching the minds of future generations. till finally, so much time passes where they can't even recover the original uh, irrelevant message a relevance to the message of whatever area thought that is. They can't even recover a link between that message and themselves because too much time has passed and it's too hard work. Our children, many of them, are suspicious of the Hadith collections. They learn all these critical methods of historical research and now they begin to have doubts. Why does that happen? Because the science of Hadith has now been put on a shelf, and we refuse to revive, the, to, the, that say, to perform that same type of critical research that was done centuries ago. How many real Hadith scholars? ISNAD critics, Matin critics, historical critics, how much of that criticism is really going on today? Even if that criticism only brings us back to the same point we were before, that is good. But it's kept alive. It's kept alive. The great Indian thinker Iqbal wrote a book about the revivification of the Islamic sciences. He said this is extremely important. We must always investigate and reinvestigate and research the work of the past. Either perfect it or confirm it. Or confirm it. But if you just put it up on a shelf and let the science die and just rely on it, the work of the people of the past, then we become disconnected with it. And we have the problem we have today where there are children no longer have confidence in one of the most important areas of our community building. They're complaining about it. There's a huge distrust among them. Almost every kid that emails me brings up this subject sooner or later. What are we doing to answer them? And I don't just mean answer them. I mean answer them according to their level of thinking, according to their experience according to their level of thought, according to the techniques of critical investigation that they're learning in American universities? What are we doing to reach them? They're suspicious of Islamic law. They fail to see the relevance of that. The key question they keep asking is how much of this is religion and how much of this is culture? How do you separate religion from culture? They keep saying again and again. How do you tell what is essential to Islam from what is not essential? How do you know when some ideas were added to the religion, and how do you know which ones are essential and original to this faith? That's the question they're asking. We don't even allow them to ask it, and we don't prepare ourselves to answer it. We need to create an intellectual space in this community where these issues can be discussed, researched, studied, confirmed, or revised. We need to start thinking again. We need to start researching again. We need to start critically investigating again. Or else... We're going to lose a generation. Because we're not communi- we will be unable to communicate to them according to their level of thinking. And that's why we have to allow these kids to come into this community. And when they come into this communi- community, we have to allow them to voice their concerns, to voice their questions, to make their position known. And then we have to patiently and painstakingly and intelligently and rationally respond to them. Because as long as we fail to do that, we give them a a one-way ticket outside of our community. The type of scholarship we need to have, we need to revive all the great Islamic sciences. We definitely need to revive that especially here in America, where we are on the front lines of the confrontation. I hate to call it confrontation, but on the front lines of this confrontation between Islamic thought and Western thought. I don't see it as it has has to be a confrontation, but right now it is that way. And I think one thing we have to do is get out of the bunkers. But in any case, what can we do right now? I'll take about eight minutes of your time and try to summarize that. Like I said, one, create in our communities, the intellectual space, to be able to start discussing things. Discussing problems, discussing issues, discussing questions. Because right now, in our communities, we run them like some, one of those, one of those oppressive oligarchies that most of our communities come from, immigrate from, when they come to the United States. You know what an oligarchy is. where you have a small group of people ruling the entire country, controlling all the thought, coming in and going out, and not allowing any dissenting opinions. It seems, I've been at the University of Kansas 20 years, and every time a new administration comes to power, it's always some kind of coup. And then after they come to power, anybody who disagrees with them, you no longer hear them giving a Friday prayer speech. They're not allowed to disseminate any information in the mosque. And that group controls all thought, all expression in the mosque until another group could somehow or other manipulate the situation and get their coup. And then the whole situation keeps starting over and over again. We have to have freedom of speech and expression in our community, or at least create the space for it. And that's why I like addressing Muslim student associations, especially the American-born students there. If you can't find space to have your ideas discussed and expressed, make space. Form another association. Call it the Second Generation Movement. Call it the Second Generation Muslim Association. Call it the American Converts Association. Call it whatever you want, but create that space where you could research, learn, discuss, and live to the best of your ability this religion. Intellectually and fully. But you've got to create that intellectual space. A lot of scholarship needs to be done. I don't think I've discussed that well enough here today or made my position clear. But a lot of scholarship needs to be done in our community. And we also need to have our community become much more open, where free expression exists, and where we're tolerant of differences of opinion. But frankly, my brothers and sisters, I think that's going to to take too long, and it's going to come too late, unless we suddenly radically change our whole approach. To what we're trying to accomplish in America. <clears throat> <clears throat> but we can do things right away. We can do some things. And I'm gonna make three last suggestions and then I'm gonna say goodbye. And I hope I didn't upset anybody too much today. <clears throat> but, you know, I really don't like giving these type of speeches. I'd rather give a cheerleading speech like I'm often asked to give or I'd rather, you know, talk about theology, which is my favorite thing, but I'll, I, I feel an obligation. When I was asked to talk about this speech, I, feel, I felt obligated. So here I am. <coughs> There's three things we could do. Even though most of us are not scholars, most of us haven't done the type of critical investigative research I thought, most of us are engineers, mathematicians, or et cetera. We're not social scientists. We're not critical historians, we don't have PhDs in history and the social sciences. Even so, we could still do some things. We could start to approach that issue of separating religion and culture by just being, as Amina said, introspective, by asking ourselves the question, what if? Are we doing something wrong? What things might we be doing wrong? And we could start at, to the best, with the knowledge we possess, we could already start making progress. We could start saying what things in this religion are more tradition and what things are essential. Because in this context, we have to make that separation. Because we are trying to take this religion to these Americans. The second and third generation and converts and non-Muslims. And when we do that, we don't want to burden them with a lot of extra things. We want to only take them to the essentials, because if you add something that is not essential, you're going to draw them away from the religion. You're going to obscure the truth. So for example, here's a just a very simple example. I talked about the seclusion of women that exist in many Muslim communities, especially their denial of the ability to attend the prayer on the same floor with the men, as, as they do, for example, in Mecca and Medina. Let us take that issue brothers and sisters. Let us just say hypothetically that even though that might be a viable cultural interpretation in another country, let us say that that is not strictly speaking essential to the religion. Let us say that we looked in the the prophet's record, peace be upon him, and we saw that men and women interacted in the mosque in Medina. Oh, I only need five. Men and women reacted, interacted in the mosque of Medina, attended the prayers in the mosque of Medina, that that was a family-friendly environment. Let's say we could prove that case. And I think we can. But let's say we can. I don't want to argue it now. But let's say this seclusion practice that is being practiced in our community is not really necessary, essential to the religion. You may have rationalizations for it, but let's say it's not essential to the religion. And now count how many Americans who were interested in Islam, who showed interest in this religion, how many of our children have left the religion aside because of that one issue? Because of that one issue. If that is not essential to this religion, if it is not, strictly speaking, required by this religion, and everywhere that is practiced that is obscuring people from seeing the truth of islam then it's not the press that is driving those people away from the religion it is not some foreign consp- it's not some western conspiracy that is preventing them from seeing the truth of islam it is us it is us it's just a hype Hypothetical question. How many people, for how many people in this country, is the truth of Islam obscured by practices and notions that we have no explicit divine warrant? All those traditions, if we impose them on people, however small, they could be a barrier between them and the truth of Islam. And the Quran criticizes this says in no uncertain terms. Have you considered what provisions God has sent down for you and how you made some of it haram and some of it halal of your own making? Say, has God indeed permitted you? Or do you invent a lie concerning God? He was talking to the mushrikeen, people who associate with God that which is not of God. They make something sacred that God specifically did not enjoin, And it criticizes him for that. And it says in another verse, and say not for anything you invent, this is halal and this is haram, so that you invent a lie against Allah. Because when you do that, you commit, as we all know, shirk. Associating with God that which is not of God. And why is that such a serious sin? Is it because God is a jealous God? Is it because his feelings get hurt? Is it because of some personal divine problem? No. The problem with any kind of shirk, making something sacred that God has not made sacred. The problem with that is, is you obscure the truth, and you place a barrier between the truth truth and that person, and give them an excuse and a reason not to even consider your religion. That's the problem. And the Quran gives trivial, almost seemingly trivial examples. It criticizes in a very harsh way the Meccan polytheists because they used to slit the ears of cattle. and condemns them for that, for doing that without any divine warrant. Something so small, you're saying? Something so small? The problem is, is when you do that, maybe you think it's small, but later on for another person, that could be give him a reason to dismiss you of faith. Oh, look at that. Look what they do. Oh, I can't consider that religion. That can't be the truth. That's ridiculous. You know? Crime gives many examples of that, that nature. I'll give you a very simple one. The term son of God, the Jews say the. Ezra is the son of God. The Christians say, Jesus is the son of God. That is the saying, with their, uh, the saying with their mouths, imitating the statements of disbelievers of old, of deniers of old. What's the problem here? Well, in the mouth of the Jews, yes, they called Ezra the son of God. They called many other Jews the son of God. In Jewish history, in Jewish terminology, that means one who is loved by God, one who has a special relationship, a special affinity to God It doesn't have a literal meaning. So what's the problem with using that terminology? Because what happened to it? This terminology, which had no divine warrant, no explicit divine warrant, when it came to Christianity began to be taken literally. Jesus is the Son of God, God the Son, second person of the Trinity. Do you know there are millions? millions, tens of millions of people in the West that are now atheists and agnostics exactly because of that. They think the statement doesn't make sense. So by just introducing a terminology like that without any divine warrant has created a huge barrier between people and realizing the relationship with God. So what else can we do? This is the last thing I want to suggest. Yes, we should be more open, create a more open, tolerant environment. Invite these kids back into our communities, and be open and tolerant, and let them have their you know let them air their opinions. Not, and when I talk about kids, I'm not just talking about kids. I mean converts as well. Create a more open environment for research and discussion. Yes, we need to do that. Second, we must make every effort. To separate what is essential from Islam from what is not essential from, to Islam. And we have to really develop some good, vigorous, critical scholars, Muslim scholarship in this country. Because right now, really, brothers and sisters, I mean, let's, let's be honest, we just really don't have any real good critical scholars in this country. I mean, come on. Most of our Hadith scholars are f- former engineers. You know, most of us going around the country lecturing have degrees in something. You know, we haven't we haven't learned real research techniques in any of these areas. Let's just be honest. You know, our scholarship compared to Western scholarship on religion looks almost juvenile. I'm sorry to say it, at least as far as this country is concerned. And I count myself as much at uh, at fault as any of us. Yeah. But the third thing we could do is follow the model that God gave us in the Quran and in the prophet's life example. What model am I speaking of? Before you know where you're going, you have to know where you're coming from. You have to know where you are right now. If I want to get from here to Lawrence, Kansas, I better find my place on the map. Well, where are we right now as a community? If I look at the two phases of the prophet's mission, peace be upon him, the Mecca phase and the Medina phase, which phase would you think this community is closer to right now? The Mecca phase, obviously. I mean, I don't even have to make the argument to you. We're surrounded by a huge culture that doesn't, hasn't received our message, hasn't even considered our message. And we've had some, been at, faced some discrimination. We're a tiny minority. We're taking a new message. We're facing a tremendous jahiliyyah, to use the Arabic term. You know, that's our situation. We're closer to the Mecca phase. In the Mecca phase, if we're in the Mecca phase, then we should be following, more or less, and trying to bring people back into this religion, the Meccan model, following the Mecca plan. Now, if we look to the Quran, we'll find that 3%, 3%, you just take all the verses in the Quran that are of a legal nature, and then count all the verses of the Quran, take the quotient, and you'll find out that about 3% of them are commands and prohibitions, divine commands and prohibitions. 97% of the Quran teaches ethics, the relationship between God and man, the purpose of life, morality, other truths as well. The history of nations in the past teaches us how to be self-critical, how to use reason and faith, the extreme importance of using reason and faith. Teaches many, many major themes. You know what I was taught when I became a convert? Rules, rules, rules. If I hadn't studied this religion myself and entered this religion and all I received were rules, 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 I would have left it the next day. Thank God I read the Quran first. If we're going to draw these indigenous people, our own children, that second, third, and fourth generation, those converts and non-Muslims into this religion, let us begin by following the model established by God himself through his prophet Muhammad. Peace be upon him. As he once said to Muad bin Jebel on his way to take the dual leadership of the community in Yemen, he said, as you all well know, he said, first, teach them that there is no God but God and that Muhammad is his messenger. And when they have fully understood that, then teach them how to pray. And when they become consistent in that and they've developed in that fully, then teach them about fasting during Ramadan, and then once they've accomplished that, then teach them, what, about paying zakat, and making the hajj, and so forth and so on. He said, make things easy for people, and do not make them difficult, and inform them of the glad tidings, and do not repulse them. I mean, you've all heard it before. You've all heard it before. Do we practice that here? We're trying to win these kids back over to this religion. We're trying to bring a community of people into listening to this religion. And the first thing we do is get them in that door. We tell them, okay, okay, you, cover your hair. You do this, get rid of the gold. Okay, don't do this, don't do that, don't do that. No. I don't mind. I don't mind telling the people what are the Muslim behaviors or whatever. But that's become our, we, we are obsessed with only that. I've attended Friday prayers for 20 years now in this country. And every Friday it's the same thing. The speeches are either political, about Muslim politics, or they're about rules and regulations, or somebody's diatribe about you know, problems going on in the Muslim community. They never discuss the other 97% of the Quran. Virtually never, or else it's just brief allusions to that. <clears throat> and be tolerant. When we bring people into our community, don't expect them to become Middle Easterners, or you know, Arabs, or Pakistanis, or Sri Lankans the next day, or ever even. <sighs> Give them time to grow into the religion. Give them the space to grow. Give them the room to grow. Give them the right to ask. Give them the right to question. Give them time to develop. The Quran gave them 13 years in Mecca, and then slowly but surely brought them along after that. We always put the cart before the horse. Give them time. If, we, if our kids come to our community not so modestly dressed, it's better that they come than not come at all. We have to start, if you know they have this or that problem, if their behavior is not perfect from our particular perspective, it's better that they come and hear the message. It's better that they work out for themselves what it is to be a Muslim in America, because that's the generation that's going to have to take this into the future. It's better for them to be among us than not to be among us. If the prophet and his companions adopted our approach There'd probably be no Muslims today. How about the time the man came and he urinated in the mosque in that famous Hadith report? The companions were ready to kill the guy. The report says that they already had their hands on him. How do you know? Because the report says the Prophet said, let him go. Go get some water and pour it over it. You've been sent to make things easy for people, not to make them hard. Let's follow the Mecca plan. Let's just. Give it a try. Do I think, because I've said this to you today, you're going to go out and try it? No way, Jose. (laughs) But if some of you here care about your children, if some of you care about the people of America, want to bring them this message, then I beg you to give it a try. Establish a mosque, a halfway house, call it whatever you want. Make it so that people who feel shy to come to the regular mosque will come to that as they are to hear the message and to pray, even though they're not perfect, even though they may have flaws that you think you see. No matter what you see, give it, give, establish an institution where we could follow that Mecca plan. Am I talking to the leadership of masjids here? No, because they'll never do what I just said. Am I talking to the leaders of America? No, not at all. They have their leadership, their positions to protect. I'm talking to the parents. I'm talking to the young, young Muslim men and women, the few of you that are here today. I'm talking to that second generation. I'm talking to those converts. Please just do it and the rest of the community, instead of slandering them and complaining about them and making up all sorts of strange slanders and gossip about them, just give them your support. Give them your support. Know that those people are on a mission, a mission to take this message to the greater community. I know that some of you can't tolerate that, and I understand that. And as Harry Truman used to say, you can't take that kind of environment, so If you can't stand the heat, just stay out of the kitchen. But for those people that are going to take the heat, and are willing to work with real Americans, and to show the patience, and the tolerance, and the wisdom, and to carry out this plan that Allah once carried out with the people of Mecca and spread throughout the world, for those people who are willing to engage in that, to invest the time, energy, effort, Resources to take out ads in the paper to publicize this venture. Please, at least, don't stand in their way. Even if you're not willing to give them your support, I had a lot of other things I had to say, but you're looking as exhausted as I feel. So, thank you so much, and uh, for at least hearing me out. And may Allah bless you. And. Bless you and your children and your children's children. And, salamu alaykum wa rahmatullah.